Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is another edition of Comfort's Corner, where we bring you the inside story and what's happening in and around the transit industry. This week is a special episode because it comes right at the end of our annual Think Transit conference. It's been a phenomenal conference, and you may be listening to this while the conference is still going on. We wanted to be able to bring you some important headline news, a great newsmaker interview with Luke Antonio, the editor of Intelligent Transport, and a look at the future of public transportation, plus Mike's Minute and Alea Carey's Messaging Minute. But first, a look at headline news. The Edmonton Transit Service in Canada launched its redesigned bus network, new on-demand service, and opens its new Millswood Transit Center all this week, marking the first time in about 20 years the system has undergone a significant refresh of its services. The mayor of Edmonton, Don Ivinson, said these projects support a strong and integrated transit network that is critical to building a great city where it's safer, more convenient, and greener to travel from one place to another. While the number of bus routes has decreased, the frequency and service has increased on the new routes, creating a more integrated network with 93% of addresses within a five to seven minute walk of a transit stop. The new services meet the expectation of current riders and set a foundation for the city's future growth. Carrie Houghton McDonald, ETS branch manager who replaced our friend Eddie Robar, and he moved up to a different position in the city, said, we're very excited to see a modernized transit system coming to a street near you. This is a major step toward providing the type of service Edmontonians told us they wanted today and meeting the evolving transit expectations as our city grows in the future. The system will feature five new types of bus routes, cross town to connect suburban destinations without a trip downtown, frequent, which carry headways of 15 minutes or better, community, which connects seniors' residences and nearby services, local to provide neighborhood connections, and rapid, which are express routes with limited stops that connect suburbs to downtown. The new types of bus routes are in addition to the special school routes and late night owl routes ETS will operate. To complement the new bus system, get this, will be Canada's largest on-demand service that will use 57 accessible shuttles to connect 37 neighborhoods and senior residences to nearby designated transit hubs. ETS explains on its transit demand, Service is provided in areas where it's a better fit than regular bus service. It has the advantage of providing services seven days a week with the same or better frequency of scheduled service. So this new um, micro transit service is uh, going to be what they say the, the biggest in the, in the country of Canada with 57 uh, accessible shuttles. And they're also celebrating the opening of the Millwoods Transit Center, which is designed to simplify how customers get to their bus or light rail connection. It's a $17.4 million Canadian dollar transit center, includes a covered walkway and provides a connection to nearby Millwood stop on the Valley Line, scheduled to open later this year. So congratulations, Edmonton just taking the lead again. Remember, they, they're the ones that bought the 40 electric buses, proterian buses earlier and, uh, and set a record for Canada there as well, the largest single electric bus buy at the time. So congratulations to them. And other big news from the transit industry, EQT Infrastructure, a private equity firm and infrastructure investor, has entered an agreement to acquire First Student and First Transit from First Group. The $4.6 billion sale is expected to close in the second half of 2021, but is subject to First Group shareholder approval, as well as North American regulatory approval. First Student operates transportation services to approximately 1,000 school districts in North America, while First Transit operates in 300 locations and transports 350 million passengers annually. 
the CEO of First Group, Matthew Gregory, said, we're pleased to have agreed the sale of First Student and First Transit in a transaction which recognizes their full strategic value, both their resilient, high-quality businesses with strong prospects for returning to normal levels of service following the pandemic. Our colleagues at First Student and First Transit have built excellent relationships with their customers over many years, and we're proud of their commitment. I would like to pay tribute to everyone in these businesses and acknowledge the vital role they played in the community, both now and in years to come. EQ2 Infrastructure explains it will invest in organizational, operational, and digital technology enhancement, and they plan to also accelerate the transition to renewable fuel sources and invest in electrification of its fleets to future-proof the services of First Student and First Transit, they say. The uh, president of First Transit, Brad Thomas, says this is a great business that has established a strong, profitable platform, uh, which positions us for sustainable growth over time. Through our commit, through it all, our, com our communities and our customers will remain at the heart of everything we do. So, big news: First Transit looks like they're going to be sold from their parent group, uh, First Group in Great Britain, to this company, EQT Infrastructure, a private equity firm. That's it for our headline news today. Thanks so much for being with us. Now stay tuned for our Newsmaker interview with Luke Antonio, editor of Intelligent Transport. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Recently on Comfort's Corner, I've been talking about email newsletters and transit organizations. Today's topic, wrangling the content for your newsletter. Maybe it's not surprising that the most challenging part of getting a digital newsletter out is the human factor. Whoever is sending out the newsletter has to let it be known that they're looking for content, gather that content from all the departments, edit it, possibly send it back for an accuracy check, and then finally get it into the newsletter, all on deadline. This can be especially challenging in an organization like a transit agency, when people in different departments work very divergent schedules. I've worked with many different kinds of organizations on their newsletters, and most of them struggle with content management and version control. The ones who succeed in making this process smoother do two things. They use a content planning tool that includes a calendar, a section for content objectives, and a reminder feature so everyone knows when content is due. They also establish one location, such as a Google document, where all content will be submitted and edited. These simple steps can prevent a lot of wasted time and effort and will help your newsletter build consistency and align with brand objectives and campaign goals. If you'd like to talk more about email newsletters or anything else related to communications and public transit, Look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged, Comfort's Corner. Now it's time for our newsmaker interview, and we're excited to have with us uh, one of the great newsmakers from around the world, Internationally, Luke Antonio is editor of Intelligent Transport, one of the world's leading transportation innovation magazines, websites, conference uh, organizer, and probably a lot more. Luke, thank you so much for being with us today. 
No, Paul, thank you very much indeed for having me on. It's, uh, it's fantastic to be here. As, uh, as we said before we came on, I'm a big admirer of everything you do as well on Trans Unplugged. So, yeah, it's a great opportunity for me to, to be here and really, really appreciate it. And where do we reach you at today? Uh, so you are um, in a, a rarely sunny UK, uh, so just outside London in, in Kent. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very nice, actually. It makes a, makes a nice change from the grey and the, and the cold. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization that you uh, head up there. Yeah, sure. So, um, as you said, I'm, I'm the editor of, of Intelligent Transport and I've been here for coming up to four years now. Um, and in that time, it's been been pretty incredible to see how urban mobility and public transport has, has changed. It's come an awful long way um, from discussions about whether mobility as a service is going to really be the future i guess to some extent we're still having that conversation but to actually seeing kind of live pilots around the world and seeing it actually working plus you know all the discussions around all the different technologies in four years every everything that we were talking about four years ago has gone from discussion to at least pilot and it's been incredible to to watch that happen and see you know from my position as as the editor and seeing seeing everything being able to have the conversations with those involved in those projects and find out what the latest is, has been, yeah, it's been really, really incredible. So like you said, you know, we, we cover everything uh, on every conceivable medium, I suppose, from, from the magazine, the website, which, you know, we have news and features going up there every day. We have the, the podcast, our events um, and uh, yeah, plenty more our webinars as well. It's, is a very, very active, <laughs> active space and being able to cover mobility every day is, is, is pretty, pretty fascinating. It's one of those things where I, until I, until I took on this job, I didn't know quite how much it affected me in my day-to-day -day life. And I think it's probably the same for everybody that's involved in the industry until they're there. They are maybe blissfully unaware of the, uh, the extent to which uh, mobility and public transport really, really impacts them. Tell us a little bit about or give us a status update. Uh, now, you guys are based in the United Kingdom over there in England, as we like to call it here in America. And um, but I know you're really in tune with what's happening globally on this. And so, you know, are people moving away from paper magazines, you know, through the COVID pandemic and moving more toward online or is it coming back or like what's the status of things now? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, as as I see it, um, people still are really interested and there's a big appeal in in good print content um you know there's there's been a bit of a resurgence in the last last couple of years in in really good print content at the same time you know especially over the last year you have to really stand your toes and make sure that you're doing things in in the way that is working best for your audience um that's something that is really really important to us um you know, so last year we we made the decision for for a few issues to transition to a digital only edition of Intelligent Transport, where you know we kind of knew that people wouldn't be receiving it in their offices, um, and you know making it more accessible online and more widely across social media was probably a smart move. Um, and then obviously you know we're event organisers here as well at Intelligent Transport and 
we had to pivot quite quickly last year from what would be our annual event in London, the Intelligent Transport Conference, to um, to a digital event instead, um, which you know blissfully went without a hitch and has led us to um, yeah to three more really good events this year. First of which took place just at the end of March, and the next one's coming up in June, Mass in North America, and then a uh, a whole five day virtual event at the end of the year in November as well. Um, and the reception has been, been great. And the attendee numbers have been so much higher than we ever could have really anticipated. And I think it shows that, you know, staying in touch with your audience and staying in touch with what they, what they need and what their needs are is, is really, really important. And it's the same for publishers everywhere I would expect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in a fortunate position that, you know, we've been able to maintain that contact with our audience, with our kind of key advisors and, and make those decisions as, as and when we've needed to. And so far, you know, it's paying off. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your upcoming conference in June here in North America, the mobility as a service one. And then let's talk a little bit about the, the concept itself, mobility as a service and where you think we're at. And are we going to go to subscription based uh, anytime soon, you know, in the Western world outside of Helsinki, Finland? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's always a useful caveat to have, isn't it, outside of Helsinki, Finland? Yeah, um, yeah so the uh, the conference coming up is uh, entirely online. So it's called Mass North America. It runs from June 29th to the 30th. Um, we are adapting to a uh, US Eastern time zone, which will be fascinating for uh, yeah. me and my UK-based colleagues and our, and our, uh, our sleep patterns. Um, Essentially, what we're doing is is looking at the mass concept and this ecosystem and trying to break it down into its component parts, really. So across the two days, there'll be uh, at least four webinar sessions each day, um, each running for an hour. And each one is going to break down a separate concept of, you know, what we see as this as this mobility as a as, as a service kind of ecosystem so that's anything from um, passenger information and trip planning ticketing and payments um, data sharing and data management um, on-demand transport services and uh, looking at things like public and private partnerships and and the role that they have to play in in kind of bringing this all together um, it's it's one of those things where everybody's talking about it and nobody can <laughs> quite quite pin down what it what it means even you know a f quite a few years after the initial kind of concept emerged you know like you like you alluded to is it something that is going to be a subscription based service and, and model um akin to this idea of the netflix for, mobi for mobility or is it going to be something that is completely different? Is it going to be a completely new business model that, that we've not really seen yet? Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions. And part of what we want to do is answer those questions during the event and see if by the end we can't settle on a more kind of streamlined definition of what mobility as a service is all about. Because, you know, for some, as you know, as I'm sure you're very well, uh, very well kind of versed in. For some, the term mass is interchangeable with 
MOD. Um, right. And on demand, demand. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the case. So we want to have a look at that and, you know, work out what the terminology is that we should be using, whether we are approaching this in the right way as an industry and, uh, and how each of these component parts comes together into this broader ecosystem and, and what that really means for, for the industry moving forwards and, uh, and the kind of work that it's going to have to do to reach this, this point. It's, it's always felt since I've been working on intelligent transport that kind of mass transit and the wider mobility kind of landscape is on this precipice of, of change. Um, and it's just about, just about to tilt over into kind of all encompassing tech led and innovative, innovative change. Yeah. But it always feels like we're at that precipice and never quite tilting into it. So that's what we want to explore really with the conference and, and, uh, and work out what the kind of real next steps are for, for mass transit to be able to actually embrace this, but do it in a way that is, is right for, right for passengers and right for riders. That's great. And since you have um, a great view on this, Tell us what do you think is really happening next for public transportation, mass transit globally? Uh, where are we headed now coming out of this COVID? And I know in some places, I don't know that they really are coming out of the COVID pandemic yet, but here in the US, <laughs> I think we are. But what about the rest of the world? What do you see for us in the rest of this calendar year? Yeah, I think what's been really interesting over the last over the last few months and the start of this year is seeing those markets that are coming out of, of the pandemic a little more, um, seeing some riders return and seeing, you know, exactly what public transport operators, authorities and, and agencies need to do to bring confidence back for, for passengers. And I think what's really encouraging to see is this kind of wider acceptance that this industry is absolutely crucial for for people to to live their lives in the way that they're used to doing after this pandemic the sector kind of needs to to pull together as as one and and act in the interests of you know the greater good really i think that's really encouraging it's a great message to that we're seeing from from both sides of the industry really to to come together and and really deliver on that. So you, you would hope that there are more encouraging times ahead. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's just such an unpredictable landscape, even with the various vaccine rolls out, uh, rollouts across the UK, across the US and increasingly in Europe as well, how that goes and whether there's going to be any potential, you know, mid to long-term issues with that is, is going to be fascinating to see and, the impact that it has not just on on public transport but on so many facets of the economy is still super unpredictable um that's what we're here to do is try to get the insight that we can from from those really in amongst it to see what the potential impacts are going to be and uh try to spread best best practice as as and when it's available very good Luke Antonio, editor of Intelligent Transport, thank you so much for being our guest today on Comfort's Corner. No, Paul, thank you very much. The pleasure's all mine. Thanks a lot.
Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director for Terra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about random acts of kindness, mentorship, and leadership with the hopes it'll inspire you to pay it forward. Well, as we continue within the pandemic and across North America, it seems we've gained a little momentum with many folks receiving their first vaccinations and many others set to do so in the near future. Which brings me to another reminder of the leadership within our industry. Not only have we realized the heroes and leadership we have in transit with our frontline operators and all those whom have kept transit running, we're also reminded of the great leadership when we see the multiple agencies that continue to assist in non-traditional service initiatives within their communities, making a difference for both their communities and North America as a whole. Countless agencies continue to utilize vehicles for moving frontline workers, testing kits, meals on wheels, and free rides for vaccinations. Another great example of this was recently in Kitchener-Waterloo, where they rolled out a pilot program dubbed the Stay Safe Pilot. They retrofitted three older buses on loan from the transit agency to serve as mobile rapid COVID-19 testing and screening facilities that will drive to businesses to screen employees, and it's estimated they will be able to screen roughly 3,000 essential workers per week. Great stuff. Speaking of essential workers, that brings me to another reminder. My wife and I were very fortunate enough to have our first vaccination appointment this past Friday, and I wanted to send a huge kudos and a thanks out to all those frontline healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, and pharmacists that are administering the vaccinations and managing the logistics of rolling through the appointments across North America. The local pharmacy we attended did a tremendous job handling the lineups, answering questions, and showing great patience and compassion while dealing with the many variables and degrees of apprehension. They professionally completed the tasks with a smile on their face. Thank you for all you do. It is making a difference, and we appreciate your commitment to always helping others first. Kindness is cool. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Thanks for being with us today on Comfort's Corner. Hopefully you enjoyed our in-depth newsmaker interview and also our headline news. And now to take a look at the future of public transportation by going to the Think Transit Conference, track four, which is the track that I curated uh, called Connecting Communities. And on the first day of the conference of this week on Monday, we had a session called Improving Customer Connections. It's a panel that I moderated and the guests included John Sisson, who is Chief Executive Officer of Delaware Transit Corporation, Sam Sargent, who is Director of Strategy for the Austin Transit Partnership, and Alea Carey, well-known to those of you who listen to Comfort's Corner as the founder of Transit Happy, a strategic communications consultant, and a regular contributor to Comfort's Corner. And the three of them just did a tremendous job in making their presentations, and their Q&A at the end was just phenomenal. And I thought we wanted to play for you on the future public transportation a few of their answers so you could kind of get a feel in case you weren't able to attend Think Transit, or if you weren't able to attend this session, you can get some of the great nuggets of wisdom out of it as they look at the future public transportation in their regions and for the industry. Thanks and enjoy. And now I'd like to invite Sam and John back on the screen with us for some questions and answers. Uh, what a great uh, overall presentation today from all of you. And uh, I'd like to ask those in the audience now, if you have any questions, now it's time to go ahead and put them in the, uh, put them in the mix there. And as they come up, um, Vicki from behind the scenes, uh, one of our producers will be letting us know about them. Uh, but before we get to those questions though, I'd like to ask you, John, to follow up a little bit. Can you tell us a little more about your autonomous vehicle transit shuttle? Sure. So uh, probably about a year and a half ago, maybe, maybe a little less, we bought two 
um, Easy Mile Autonomous Shuttles. George and Jane, um, mm -hmm. we have named them, if you can figure that out. And, you know, unfortunately, COVID put a little wrinkle into our, our rollout and deployment of them, but we've been testing them, running them around our, we go, it's called the Danner campus. It's where our office in Del Dot and the motor vehicle offices in Dover, been running them around a loop. Um, we hope to um, early in May start putting some Del Dot and Dart employees on them and then eventually get them rolled out to the public to see them. Um, just the size of them with COVID restrictions made it a little bit challenging and some other things. But what we want to learn with, and not just from a transit side, but from a traffic engineering side, is these two vehicles talk to each other. They talk to traffic signals. They talk to other things else. And we want to understand and be ahead of the curve a little bit and understanding how this technology could be used in transit. I don't ever expect um, the transit driver to go away. Um, they do They do so much more than just driving a bus, right? They're ambassadors. They're making sure everything's going right. But like I talked about with Mobileye before, if we can prevent accidents, we can make things more efficient. We can do things better than let's do things better. So we're learning. We're learning a lot. Um, it's been a great little experiment experiment for us. And and we'll, we'll be doing more in the next um, next year or so as we're allowed to get more people on there and get them past that anxiety or fear that, hey, this thing is operating on its own. And what does that mean? Excellent. Thanks, John. All right. We've got question number one that's come in for Alea. Any recommendations for agencies to involve their staff in social media like drivers, operators, et cetera? Not while they're driving, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I mean, th that begins with your internal comms program, right? And your employee recognition um, uh, efforts. Um, the uh, I, I've heard from agencies consistently, uh, pandemic or no, that the most um, the most uh, engaged with posts are ones that have to do with employee rec recognition, positive things that. The agency can say about the people who work for them. So I think that is a um, very sticky way of getting your employees onto those um, onto those channels and engaging with those channels and encouraging them to use those channels. Um, you can also set, you know, you you've got to have uh, moderation. You got to have. Um, uh, like an editor for content, not necessarily uh, somebody who's going to fly spec the whole thing, but someone who's you know willing to watch and uh, make sure that you're being brand consistent. But um, you can even do contests with tagging the agency from personal accounts um, or um, just you know letting them. Or, um, oh, here's a great idea. SEPTA does. Um, uh, they announce themselves. Like when somebody takes over their Twitter for their shift, for their eight-hour shift or whatever it is, it's like, hi, my name is Carlos, and I'm here to help you for the day on Twitter. And um, the fact that there's a guy named Carlos who works for SEPTA is very engaging uh, for, for both internal audiences and external audiences. That is good. Makes that personal connection. That's great. Hey, Sam, a uh, question for you now. Uh, how have – okay, some, some – oh, questions around dashboards. The dashboards you were talking about, are they visible for just management? How do you share the results, at least internally? That's a good question. So we do have public-facing dashboards that I think have been a great way to tell our story. As you can imagine, Austin is a, a tech town. And so we do have a lot of members of our community, as well as elected officials, who expect to see a pretty uh, good amount of data and to see it visualized in, a, in an easy user experience um, kind of way. But internally, we do have an intranet site that we call Cap Metro Central, 
that we use for all of our internal communications. And most of what you find there um, is available to the public. I mean, we, we want this to be as transparent as possible, but sometimes we do have metrics related to hiring, or maybe we have some uh, projects that really have more of an internal focus. For instance, we, we are working on a campus master plan that sure is going to be interesting to the general public because it's taxpayer dollars, but it's really going to have an impact on the day-to-day lives of our employees. And so that might be the type of project that you show budget, schedule, et cetera, in an internal facing dashboard. Um, the same thing with vacancies uh, and a host of other more internal facing uh, data metrics. But by and large, most of what we put out there does go to the public at large. Very good. Thank you. John, now a question for you. How have your technology priorities changed since COVID-19? What are you prioritizing now that you weren't before at Delaware? So we, we've been doing a lot, but I'll say one of them in particular is um, validators for uh, for paratransit. It wasn't really on our radar, but this idea of, you know, with a paratransit customer, sometimes our operators are now handling cash and tickets just because of, you know, the customer may not be able to do that. So we, we, we moved that up on the list, um, something we weren't going to, we were going to do eventually, but not right away. And then um, just again, pushing everything we can, um, the infotainment that's going to be on our buses was, was on our radar, but not at the top of our list. So understanding the communication, um, just like Elliot's talking about all the various ways of getting people out there, whether it's the Twitter or the social media, um, we got to increase that. And when we, you know, when people start coming back, it's going to be even harder to capture those choice riders. And we need to do everything we can to do that. So just trying to make that experience as best as we can is, is, is really try, is driving some of these decisions. Are you guys moving, John, toward um, uh, cashless or no fare boxes, those kind of things? Um, I don't think we'll ever get away from no fare boxes unless we decide to go totally free. But I just just knowing there's segments of our population don't have smartphones, don't have banking, they have banking challenges and everything else. Um, I don't think we'll get that way, but it's, it's our desire to push as much cash off the bus as possible. How about you, Sam, for for Austin? I think it's probably a similar answer to John's is that, you know, while, while we are doing everything that we can, uh, including partnering with local retailers, which I know a lot of other agencies have done, uh, Dart, Valley Metro have pretty extensive um, retailer outlets so that we can try to push the cash off board as much as humanly possible. So people can either get, you know, Magstripe passes or eventually tap cards or even reload their mobile app. Um, Same thing with adding TVMs off board. We will likely still have a fare box for quite some time. And so while we can reduce, you know, dwell time and a whole host of other things by, by, by not having as many of those interactions, I think that the physical fare box is probably there for a while, unless we also opt to uh, to explore going fare free in the future. Gotcha. All right, Alea, there's a question that's come in from the audience. How do agencies better communicate to their communities the broader impact of their services? Social mm-hmm. media is part of it, but what else can they do to help the supporting public understand its impact on the community? Right. Well, I think start with uh, bearing in mind that it's a long, long Hall, right, and that this tell, telling these stories takes a takes a very long time and takes really consistent um, consistent work. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is earned media and how you relate to um, how do you how you relate to the press in your community, uh, how you lead in those relationships, getting the story um, out to the press, and that that means. 
um, keeping the relationship with your local journalists really warm and really connected in larger markets. Um, some of that goes back a little bit to social media uh, because you may not know all the journalists that you deal with, but the um, the the folks that you don't necessarily know are hanging out on Twitter for sure. Uh, it's like the water cooler for for journalists. And so what are they doing on, on Twitter and how can you um, uh, learn what they're interested in and get ahead of the story? And um, also, in, in addition to just like your local press, you, you also have community partners who can help you get those stories out. Um, those might be government agencies or local nonprofits, but they too have big audiences. Uh, and newsletters and uh, websites that you can partner with and share stories. And one final thing is, what can you do to get the advocates, the writer advocates for your system involved in your stories? Uh, that might be social media, but it might be um, finding ways for writer advocates to uh, talk to the media themselves about their experience. Very good. Thank you. Let's see here. There was a question about vaccines and, um, uh, you know, is there any uh, plans to make them mandatory for passengers riding the vehicle, et cetera? I haven't heard any transit agencies say that, but a question came in about that. John? No, I mean, there's no plan to make it mandatory, but I can tell you we're doing everything we can to help our community get vaccinated. Uh, we had an effort, we're ongoing, um, working with Health and Human Services to get our paratransit customers, especially some of the most vulnerable, vaccinated. And that started with calling in Sussex County, every one of our customers asking if they needed a vaccine and then taking vaccinators out to their houses. Wow. We had customers who had not left their house in over a year, um, just for whatever reason. And <laughs> and then this weekend, uh, we were taking customers to a mega site at Dover International Speedway. Anything we can do to help get them vaccinated, get our employees vaccinated, we're willing to do it. We've had staff members helping like just on loan, we have a paratransit reservationist who's not as busy as she normally would be. She's on loan with public health, putting packages together for these events every weekend. So um, we're all in favor of it, but I, I just don't see the logistics of trying to get make sure they're all vaccinated. We, we Not that it's been a hard struggle, but mask wearing is enough of a challenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sam, any thoughts? I agree. I, I think it's just the, the, uh, the logistics and probably – depending on your state, the legality of, of figuring out who is vaccinated and who isn't. But like John and, and what they've done uh, in Delaware, we're uh, we are providing uh, free uh, general public curb-to-curb -curb trips to vaccination sites. Um, and we've had a fairly good amount of interest in that. Um, and then obviously for our workforce, uh, we, are, we have done everything that we can do to get people uh, those vaccines as well. Uh, including trying to bring Austin Public Health, you know, to our operations centers at times that work for operators, which one can imagine are, are wildly different than uh, than many members of the general public. Um, and then we we are also exploring, you know, what what are the options that we have to require all employees as opposed to members of the public uh, to have vaccines before they come back to work. Um, I think I think that the percentage of our employees who have gotten it either one or two doses, depending on what they're, they're getting is very high. So we're very proud of that. But, um, you know, at some point we'll have to return to some semblance of, of normalcy and we need to do whatever we can to protect both our, our operators as well as our customers. One follow-up question for you, Sam, on an earlier topic. Mm -hmm. um, the $7 billion that uh, has been bandied about of, which is all the money for that was approved by the voters, over how long will that money be coming in and, and funding these projects? 
So it's a it's a for Texas at least it's a fairly unique setup. Uh, so Capital Metro, like other metropolitan transportation agencies in Texas, is is uh, funded with one penny of sales tax. Like a lot of Sun Belt agencies, our fare box recovery is low, um, and our, our fares are also very low. In fact, I think they may be have the lowest base fare in the industry at a dollar twenty five. So over eighty percent of our funds come from sales tax. Now we needed to be able to raise $7.1 billion plus for this program. And we do not have the bonding capacity, nor does the city to pull that off. And so the city went out for a property tax measure, 8.75 cent property tax measure that will go on in perpetuity for properties in the city of Austin. And so that money, as it starts to come in uh, this year and beyond, is going to raise a lot of money, but we'll still have a big steep increase very soon in how much we need. So it's gonna allow us to issue revenue bonds from the Austin Transit Partnership. And when the capital side of this is over, which we expect to be in about 13 years. So, you know, the question was really, what is the life of the project? 13 years is when we expect to have implemented everything that we put on the map as part of Proposition A, including light rail and the tunnel that capital money will then be transformed into either money for a future extension, if the voters were to say yes to that. Uh, but more importantly, it will cover O&M uh, for this greatly expanded system. Because the penny that we have today is very healthy and we're grateful for it, but in no way could it cover this greatly, greatly expanded system here in Austin. So it will go on in, in perpetuity for this purpose until voters say otherwise. Very good. Thank you for that. And thank, thank you all three of you for a great presentations today. Alea Carey from Transit Happy, John Sisson from Delaware's Dart, and Sam Sargent from Austin, Texas. Thank you so much for sharing how you are connecting with communities here today on Trapeze's Think Transit Conference, Track 4, Session 1. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, stay tuned for the next session, which is coming up in five minutes. I'm Paul Comfort. It's been great hosting with you today. I'll be back all week long, and I'll be uh, sharing the keynote speech on Wednesday, along with three other of my friends from the transit industry. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>